If you will, on your devices, in your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 32. If you don't have a Bible or device, uh, there are some spares in the chairs in front of you as well, underneath them. And as you're turning there, to give you something to think about, I'm gonna ask a question that I don't want you to answer out loud, to think about the answer. It's not a rhetorical question. But what do people want most in life? What do people want most in life? You may have a guess or an idea or know what you want most in life. A writer for the Huffington Post uh, two years ago asked this question in an article that she wrote. And the name of the article, the title of the article was the top 10 things that people want most in life and can't seem to find. Any guesses on what the number one thing would be? Happiness. It seems obvious enough. But happiness was the number one thing that people want and can't seem to find according to this article. This is a paraphrase, but the author writes this about happiness. Happiness has become so hard to achieve and even harder to maintain. In my work with professionals, I've seen that happiness continually escapes them because first, they don't really understand exactly what will make them happy. They just don't know themselves well at all. Second, they search outside themselves for happiness, whether it be a job, a spouse, family, a title, a paycheck, or a fancy house. As a result, happiness is constantly out of their control and it's a perpetual moving target and never stands still long enough for anyone to grasp it. And then she also says, I'm not saying that these things I mentioned before, career, job, family, nice house, won't bring happiness. Of course they can bring happiness. But the key point here is that if everything you're searching for remains outside of you, you'll always be scrambling and chasing. Now, there's some insight there, and I don't disagree completely with that quote. The ironic thing, though, is that a year later, Business Insider put out a very similar article titled, The Nine Things That Scientists Say Happy People Have in Common. And I want you to hear that, that you've got scientists studying on what makes people happy now. But essentially, the list that they compiled were all the things that she listed previously that, that may or may not make you happy relationships, people that have long-lasting relationships seem to be more fulfilled and happier than people that don't. Time, this is a new one in the last couple of years, people would rather have time as opposed to money. That's what they say. Ironically, though, number three on the list is money because you can have all the time in the world, but if you don't have money, then the time is kind of worthless. Four, people who, stop, and I quote, stop and smell the roses or reflect on the positives in their life and try to block out the negative tend to be happier. Number five, performing acts of kindness to others is proven to boost your mood and provide personal gratification, exercise. Number seven was fun. Thought that was fairly obvious. But then they put out beside fun, people who spend money on experiences rather than stuff tend to be happier, but then they follow that with, but if you spend money on stuff that leads to experiences, then you tend to also be happier. Mindful meditation, that's not one I've mastered yet, but then they, the caveat there is just be in the now. Don't worry about tomorrow. And then time with friends. Casual friends tend to boost morale. And then also time with close friends, also very obvious, this next quote, and especially happy friends tend to lead others to be happier. Now, I'm sarcastic by nature. It tends to be one of my love languages. So when I hear some of these things, the, the desire to be really sarcastic starts to well up within me. But none of these things are bad. And just because they're obvious, that doesn't mean that they're not valuable or or, or practical pieces of advice. And we can laugh at them, 
But in our culture, you've got motivational speakers, spiritual advisors, gurus, and bloggers who make a killing every year writing the same stuff. And that's not because it's necessarily bad advice, but it's because people hear it and they drink it up because they're so desperate to be happy. And then they keep coming back for more. Now, you also may think, well, to want to be happy is a shallow desire. I want to also cure that misconception. It's not a shallow desire. And one, there's also a misconception with Christians. If you're here this morning, this may be one of the reasons you've never pursued Jesus because from what you can tell, Christians are either A, just so euphoric and numb. It's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. They smile, but you kind of want to do this. It's like, do you really, are you really aware of what's going on around you? Or we're just miserable people. Like we, we believe this great truth, but we're just cranky and grumpy. And we, don't have, we don't ever have any fun. Also not true. Psychology today defines happiness as this. I'm actually gonna read the definition because I'll mess it up otherwise. Happiness is more than simply a positive mood. Happiness instead is a state of well-being resulting from living a life of meaning and deep satisfaction. Now, when you understand it from that definition, that sounds less shallow. In fact, I would say that's what we were created for. Now, don't hear me saying that's what you deserve, but it is what we were created for. Deep satisfaction, deep meaning and purpose to our life. That's what we had in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted nothing. Materially, they had it made. Purpose, they knew exactly what they were there for. Relationally, they weren't arguing. And they were united perfectly. They walked, as scripture says, in the cool of the day with their creator. And it wasn't until they chose the words of a snake over their creator that this perpetual discontent and lack of satisfaction, peace and meeting came into play. And this morning in Psalm 32, we find a Psalm written by King David. You wanna talk about material wealth? He had it. He was a king. Now in our culture, we know there's countries that have kings, but they're almost more of like just a, a figurehead to talk about. But in David's day, he had everything. In fact, put David where he was then into our culture now, you've got a, a Navy SEAL turned president of Amazon with a record label on the side. He was a poet and a songwriter. He didn't need anything. And yet he was not satisfied. And it wasn't until he pursued the world's provision of happiness to the point that he has an affair, lies to cover it up, the lie doesn't work. And so he commits murder that he finds happiness. It's in his brokenness over his sin that he writes this psalm. This psalm is called an Asher psalm. There's three of them. An Asher, the non-scholarly way to understand this is that there's three Asher psalms. They start with blessed. Now, the word blessed is a word you know if you've been around church. It's also, also a word we don't really know what it means. Translated most appropriately from the Hebrew, it means happy. And then this psalm is also called a masculine of David, which means it's intentionally meant to instruct. So David is instructing the people of Israel in what it means to be happy. And his instruction does not include financial advice, tips for staying positive or stopping and smelling the roses. It tells the people of Israel what it is to be broken by sin and to be restored to a right relationship with God. God offers us happiness, but that happiness doesn't come through just believing more in ourselves or getting enough of the right stuff or spending enough time with the right people, it actually comes from us realizing that we're not enough and that to be happy, we need to be united to him. And that only comes now through the forgiveness of our sins. So if you take notes, here's your, your one line for this morning. Because God offers us happiness through the forgiveness of our sins, we must be forgiven in order 
to be happy. Let's look at God's word, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the offer that you present to us. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you have completed the work to make available to us. Lord, these are big and important truths. Let them not be lost on us now. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So forgiveness leads to happiness. Go ahead and give you the, the three points of why that's true. That way, if I go, on a, go off on a tangent, you know where we're gonna wind back up. First of all, forgiveness leads to happiness because it gives us a foundation of grace. Second of all, because it provides us freedom from bondage. And third, because it leads us to fellowship with God. Verses one and two, forgiveness gives us a foundation of grace. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, again, if you've been around church, being forgiven of sins is not a foreign concept. In fact, you've heard the word sin before and you've heard the word forgiveness before. But it's easy to brush over that and say, yes, I know that. But we're talking about a pathway back to happiness, back to peace and satisfaction. And David is a songwriter. David is a poet. So David doesn't use just one word or some generic term for us to easily brush over. He creates, he, he paints for us a picture. There's actually three words in Hebrew for sin, I'm not gonna pronounce, I'm gonna tell you what they mean. And then there's three words for forgiveness. As one pastor says, David's got a vocabulary at his disposal and he uses the whole vocabulary. Why? Because he wants us to understand the weight of our sin so that the gift of our forgiveness is beautiful. The first word for sin is transgression. Transgression basically refers to you knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing wrong anyway. Even now, I'm a, I'm a trail runner, and even now, I see no trespassing signs and get curious rather than being warded off. I view that as, now, I don't go down them anymore. So I'm 33, and I shouldn't do that anymore. But right, but we can all relate to knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong, and choosing the opposite, choosing the wrong, rather because we don't trust that the right will give us what we need, or we think the right is keeping us from something we deserve, or the wrong just seems more interesting. It's an intentional choice. And there's none of you here this morning, unless you are deceived, they can say, I've never intentionally done anything wrong. If you're a parent, 
You've never yelled at your kids. I, that's not true. You haven't gossiped. You haven't hated. You haven't lied behind somebody's back. You haven't cheated. We've transgressed. And when we know what's right and we choose what's wrong anyway, what we're doing is heaping up righteous guilt and penalty upon ourselves that we deserve it. But David says those sins, that penalty, those, those debts are forgiven. And the word forgiven means to pick up and move. Or in the Old Testament, when somebody would follow or a, or a tribe would follow the uh, prescriptions to be forgiven for their sins, they bring a whole herd of goats and the priest would pray and do, do what he did. And then they would, send, they would basically run the goats off. The goats would just disappear over the hillside. And they'd say, your sins are forgiven. They're gone like the goats are. That sin is picked up and moved. Also, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now, sin is the familiar, not to be repetitive, sin word. This is the wrongdoing word that we know if we've been around church. But I don't want us to take that for granted. This is an intentional term. So we talked about transgression being what we're aware that we've done wrong. And if you're honest with yourself, what you know you've done wrong intentionally becomes overwhelming enough. Sin is everything else that you can't keep track of. Sin is every time you try, no matter how hard you try, how good your intentions may be, you still mess up. The thoughts that you think, the things that you say behind closed doors, the things that you do that you swore you would never do again. And it just keeps happening. Sin is an archer's term. It means to miss the mark. And we miss the mark all the time. And if the transgression wasn't overwhelming enough, knowing that there's also stuff we can't keep track of and we're gonna do no matter how hard we try, the feeling you should feel overwhelmed. If you're letting this sink in, this should feel heavy. But then David says it's covered. Now, there's a couple words that can be used for covered. The one when it says that we, referring to our own attempts to cover our own sin, think of it like digging a shallow grave, covering it with a thin layer of dirt only for it to pop back up again. The word that David uses for our sins being covered by God is actually the same term that's used in Exodus when the Egyptians are covered by the Red Sea. They are buried. They are gone. They are not coming back. That's good news. The third word he uses for sin, and this is strategic in the way that he, he places it, not only the word use, but the word placement. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is the explanation for our sin and our transgression. Iniquity refers to the, what, what theologians say, the inner twistedness of our soul. The reason you transgress, the reason that you choose right over wrong, the reason that you keep screwing up even though you don't want to is because at your core, at your very existence, you are broken. And then David uses an accounting term, the Lord counts, counts it not against him rather than counting it against him as we deserve, he doesn't. He actually reckons righteousness to those who come to him. And then it says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You may wonder why in the world we're talking about sin and forgiveness as a pathway to happiness, but that's why David adds in, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Because if you know and believe and accept that this is something you need, if you understand the weight of your sin, then the gift of your forgiveness is fantastic news and is completely understandable reason to be happy. In fact, it should lead to that deep peace and satisfaction. Having that foundation of grace that then allows us to understand where this forgiveness becomes personal and that's it gives us freedom from bondage. 
Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 were written around the same time. Psalm 51 historically probably comes first uh, as far as when David wrote it, but they're both connected to David's affair and lies and murder uh, connected to um, Bathsheba and, and her husband. So David goes from giving us this high transcendent truth to saying, now all this is high and it's lofty, but it's also down here. The transcendent becomes imminent. It goes from being high to being close. The truth doesn't change, but it becomes personal. David is speaking from personal experience. When we talk about bondage, read what David says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now bondage. This is something we all should be able to relate to. And I want us to think about bondage at, at two levels. The first is, is, is the conversion level. If you've said yes to Jesus, then you understand that you've gone from being bound and destined for death and you're now walking in light and life. There is that essence of freedom of bondage and you live in that reality now. Now, I'm not saying that, until you're, that if you're not a Christian, that until you become a Christian, you're not going to enjoy anything. Quite the opposite. So you probably enjoy stuff a ton, which is why you think you don't need Jesus. But one pastor, a guy named Scott Sauls, is quoted as saying, even though non-Christians can enjoy life, that's common grace. God gives good things. You're made in the image of God. The spirit-filled life, the man who has said yes to Jesus and has been released from the bondage of his sin is experiencing in this life, not just in heaven, in this life, the highest form of existence. Why? Because you know the good things that you can enjoy are not all there is. They're not the sole source of your satisfaction, your peace. There's something more. There's something more in this life and there's something more in the next. C.S. Lewis talks about this bondage in his book, The Great Divorce, which is a fictional book designed to help you think about things that are not fictional. He talks about hell and this kind of bondage being rather than a place of, of physical fire, rather it's a place that the people that chose something over God are given over to that one thing, but it never satisfies and they can't get away from it. And it keeps happening over and over and over again. You're freed from bondage if you're forgiven. Now, there's also the specific aspect of this. David is talking about a specific sin. And you may have come in here this morning carrying a specific, we all have specific sins. Okay, and when David talks about the freedom that when, he, when he confesses it, that's something we should all practice. But I want us to think for a minute. So I, I wanna separate two things. You may have come in here this morning feeling worthless and you don't know why. Vague shame and, and just not knowing why you feel worthless or unwelcome, you don't, you don't understand why, you just feel that way. That's from the devil. That is not from God. That is not conviction. Specific guilt over specific sins, as one pastor says, is absolutely from the Holy Spirit. You may not want to feel it, but it's from the Holy Spirit so that you can unload it and find freedom from it. David says, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. Your hand, oh God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Some of you this morning relate to that tremendously. That is you this morning. And that may very well be because there's a specific sin and you may know full well what it is that you were trying to bury on your own, hide on your own, carry or not deal with on your own. Whether because you think that you'll be rejected if it comes out, it's pride, Whatever it is, it is not wise to do that. It is not beneficial for you to do that. Your, if it's not already happening, your bones will waste away. You will start to feel the physical effects that come from the emotional stress of doing that. 
And ultimately, you'll fall apart. If your body doesn't fall apart, your relationships will. It's not noble or good to try to hide or bury specific sin. It's poisonous. And look what happens. And there's guaranteed freedom from it. I'm gonna show you that in two ways. First, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's guaranteed freedom from it. Two reasons. David experiences it. He's speaking from personal experience and he messed up bad, adultery, lying, murder. And I don't tell you that so you can say, well, I've not done any of those three things, so I'm good. Right? If adultery or murder, your trump card for feeling good about yourself, those are bad trump cards. Really bad trump cards. But David says, as bad as I was, I was forgiven. That is so that you know that no matter what you brought in here, Jesus can handle it. But the second guarantee for that comes and that you can see Jesus on the cross in this Psalm. My bones wasted away. He was held up, his body weight held up by his wrists after being beaten half to death the night before. My strength sapped out in the blazing sun at high noon, bleeding out, barely breathing. His strength was sapped. God's hand heavy upon him. The full wrath of God was poured out on him so that you know, so that you could know with full certainty, you can unload whatever it is that you brought in here this morning and find guaranteed freedom from that bondage. And I would challenge you that if you think you can handle it on your own, well, Jesus died so that you don't have to, so you're wrong there. Second of all, if it's not a big deal to you, Jesus died because it was. So you having freedom from bondage is a great gift, but it is of the utmost importance. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have given his life for it. And knowing that, we come into the third reason that forgiveness brings us happiness. That's because it brings us back into fellowship with God. I was warned, well, everyone gets warned in seminary when you start taking preaching classes that to be careful if you don't already have children, once you start having children, they're gonna find their way into all of your sermons. So far, that's true. Now, my oldest has asked that I stop doing that. My, my youngest loves it. And so Titus is at a really fun point in his age right now after, he, so he's four going on five. And after about three years of, of wanting his mom to fix everything, he's like, he's in that daddy's boy phase. And he, he, lo- he loves hanging out right now. In fact, he has named us anytime we go do anything, whether it's we're going to the grocery store uh, or you know, going to pick up his sister from school, it's, it's man time. That's what he calls it. This is man time. We're having man time. But the reason that he loves it so much, bless the poor kid's heart, is because he thinks I hung the moon. In the, uh, the last three weeks, uh, he, he, number one, he thinks I know the answers to all the questions. He asked me last night at dinner, where did the dinosaurs come from? And expected me to know the answer. Um, I, I didn't tell him that I know the answer. I don't think I know the answer. Uh, he told his teachers that I am the best egg cooker in our house. Uh, and then we were at a baby shower for a, uh, a family member um, uh, two weeks ago. And he told a perfect stranger that my dad can beat you up. <laughs> and no, I didn't tell him to say that. My point here is he delights and being near me. Because in his mind, I can handle whatever it is that he brings to me. I give him exactly what he needs. He is safe with me. He's secure with me. 
Starting in verse six, we see David just recounting what a blessing it is to be in the presence, to, be, to have the availability of, of his father to him and a father who actually can do everything, a father who does have all the answers. So when we come into fellowship with God, look what we have. We, in verses six and seven, we find peace and safety. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That is to emphasize he can be found. He is available now. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. When great, the great waters shall not reach him. That's not to say difficult circumstances won't happen. David is well acquainted with things falling apart. They will not reach him. Think of it as they will not drown you. They will not overtake you. As hard as it may get, you can rest if you're in fellowship with God that his plan will prevail and he's gonna put you where you need to be. He's going, it, the best result for you will come from it as hard as it may be. Hiding place, think of a mama, a mama bird draping her wing, her wing excuse me, around a baby bird where it is safe and it is kept and it is protected. You have that in God if you're forgiven. You have fellowship with him. You have a hiding place a place when your normal escapes are just not cutting anymore. You have a hiding place. Verses eight and nine, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God's word provides us guidance and wisdom and certainty in a culture where certainty is scarcely available, where there's tons of arguing and ideas and no solutions. God's word offers guidance and truth, objective truth that you can rely on and follow. And then the term counsel, I love this. It speaks to my heart. Practical advice, comfort, and a listening ear. Strength and guidance when the world is falling apart. And then he says, with my eye upon you, I'm not giving you advice and saying, don't bother me anymore. I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you where to go and how to do it with, while watching over you and going with you. And then David throws in the animal reference. And don't be like a horse or a mule that won't come unless it's yanked by the mouth. And you may wonder sometimes why, the, why Jesus, why David, why we're constantly compared to relatively dumb and stubborn animals. It's a fair comparison though, if we're honest. Amen. And then we have love, victory, and joy in verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the question then becomes, what do we do? The beautiful thing about this psalm and application is it's fairly, it's fairly straightforward. First of all, I would ask you this. Do you know the joy of forgiveness? Do you know the happiness that comes from forgiveness? And I, and I ask that to two groups of people. One, to those of you who may not have said yes to Jesus, but you feel that searching and that longing and you know what you have is not sustainable. David says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He may be found. Now there's coming a time where he, he will not be available. That time's not today, you're here and you're here for a reason. And if you do claim Jesus, are you happy about your forgiveness? 
is that truth personal to you or have you forgotten it? And what I mean there in Psalm 51, which is connected to this Psalm in verses 12 and 13, David at this point is so overwhelmed by God's grace and God's forgiveness that he promises, he's crying out to God and he promises, Lord, I will, his words are, I will teach transgressors so that sinners may return to you. Is this your response to God's forgiveness? Is that truth personal enough for you that you long to share it with others so that they may return to God because they were his all along? And then second, deal with hidden sin. Deal with hidden sin. And what what I mean there, uh, a pastor uh, named George Robertson, a pastor of Second President Memphis, who preached on the same passage, uh, was quoted as, as saying about open confession of sin that he feels like he would have preached less funerals and counseled less failed marriages if people practiced confession of their sin on a regular basis. This may be a, a normal, regular thing for you. You may love the accountability, have brothers or sisters you trust, you have a healthy prayer life and confessing your sins on a regular basis is something you do. If that's the case, you understand the benefit and the freedom that comes from that. But you may be here as we've already said and there's something specific that's eating you alive. And until it's dealt with and until it's out in the open, keeping it in the dark only helps it grow. It won't die until it's in the light. Why not let today be the day? And I'm not saying everything gets solved. It may be something that requires a long road of healing. But why not let today be the day that that healing starts? You have elders and people here who would love to talk to you. Unload it and start experiencing that freedom from bondage. I'll close with this quote. This is from Jonathan Edwards. It's a Puritan theologian, pastor, and writer. It says, the godly man is happy in whatever circumstances he is placed in because of the spiritual privileges and advantages, joys and satisfactions he actually enjoys while in this life. And how great a happiness it must be to a man to have all his sins pardoned and to stand guilty of nothing in God's presence, to be washed clean from all his pollutions, to have the great and eternal and almighty God who rules and governs the whole universe and does whatever he pleases in the armies of heaven and amongst the people of the earth, reconciled to him and perfectly at peace with him.